to turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. We're going to read verses 15 through 24 together this morning as we continue our Harmony of the Gospels. John 14, verses 15 through 24. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper that He may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. After a little while, while the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, He will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the blessed privilege of gathering together in this place to worship and honor you. Lord, yes, part of our worship is seeing and singing songs of praise that reverberate from our hearts unto You, making joyful noises unto Your great and glorious name. But certainly also part of our worship is seen in the attention that we show, the reverence and respect that we show to Your Word. And that's seen not only in lip service, and not only in ear service, but in true hearing, true listening, the desire to have You change our hearts, our emotions, our wills, the way we think. We pray You would do that work today. We pray for a mighty work of the Holy Spirit in bringing truth to bear upon our hearts. And that we would be transformed by the experience. Thank You that You are a God who is near. You are a God who is great and high and majestic and overall. But You are also a God who is imminent, who is nearby, who is here with us. I pray You would do a mighty work today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can all be seated. Well, I don't take the opportunity to watch sports very often, but I did catch a highlight clip this last week that seemed very fitting to this morning. Kevin Durant was uh, given the NBA MVP this past week, and in his acceptance speech, he emphasized appreciation for his mom. He mentioned how his mom had helped hold everything together for his family He spoke about how when he was little, his mom had kept him off the street, how she had put clothes on his back, how she had put food on the table, and even forewent food herself on some occasions so that way her kids would not go to bed hungry. Then at this climactic moment, Durant said, looking at his mom in front of everyone, everyone looking on, he said, you're the real MVP, mom. You're the real MVP. Well, happy Mother's Day. I must also admit that I have been blessed beyond measure with a godly mom. There are few better gifts than a loving mom. 
A loving mom who loves Jesus. There's hardly that many gifts better than that. A mother's love takes on many forms. A mother seeks to nurture and to protect and to care for her children. A number of years ago, Gary Chapman wrote a book called The Five Love Languages. Some of you may have thumbed through it or seen it before. The book was written primarily to discuss, to give help and aid to marital relationships. Chapman not only provides a rebuke to a culture which glamorizes the idea of falling in love as the height of marital attraction, but offers tangible helps in expressing love to one another. He explains that falling in love is not real love in the sense that it is not as much an act of the will. In some senses, it requires little effort and many times seeks its own emotional fulfillment This is why people become disillusioned when things aren't so effortless. They think that they've lost love. In reality, Chapman says, it's just the beginning of true love. Love is not something that you fall into. It's an action that arises from a determined choice to put the needs of others before our own. Philippians 2.3, looking out for the interests of others and not merely your own. As the title of Chapman's book, though, suggests, he delineates no less than five means of communicating love. He explains that it's possible that love gets lost in translation at times. There might be times in which love is genuinely attempting to be expressed to a spouse and it's somehow just lost on them. Just like a person who's just learned a foreign language experiences the joy of really communicating, what he endeavored to do with this little book was to provide some help towards communicating love towards one another. He mentioned that love can be communicated through things like words of affirmation, through compliments, through showing appreciation. He said that quality time is an expression of love where we give undivided attention, face-to-face interaction, showing care and concern, showing a listening ear, spending time together. He mentioned giving gifts is a way in which we express love. Usually it's not the value or the amount of the gift itself, but the symbolic nature of the gift. What's behind the gift that has meaning? It's the thoughtfulness behind it. He mentioned acts of service, um, practical helps in everyday tasks, or doing a special project for someone is a way in which love demonstrates itself. He also mentioned physical touch. Those moments where communicating love and concern, especially when words fail to do so. Giving someone a hug or a handshake, or a pat on the back, is something that provides assurance and help in times of need. Well, many of us have learned all of those mediums of communicating love from our moms, from an early age, from the earliest of ages when we couldn't even go to the bathroom ourselves, when our moms were changing our diapers and were nursing us and they were holding us and they were listening to us cry and scream through the night. We experienced that sort of love. A love that is both through words and actions and gifts and provision. A godly mother lives for God's glory to love and care and nurture her children. She seeks to equip them with words of truth that will inform and guide their thoughts. She desires to grant them wisdom that will mold the way they make decisions throughout the rest of their life. She desires to give them the tools that are needed to live a life to God's glory. She also ministers through her very presence and her support. 
How many of us still can go to mom for help? How many of us still know that sort of um, safe harbor that exists with mom? Mom is a tried and true shelter amidst the storms of life, even from our earliest days. A comforter, a helper, and a friend. Now, certainly there is no such thing as a perfect mom, and neither are there perfect children. But a mother who's been transformed by God's grace is a true gift indeed. Oh, that every day would be a day in which we endeavor to thank our mom for what she has done for us. And by God's wondrous design, a mother's love does not stop with humanity, but it even extends to the animal kingdom. Jesus made use of an analogy dependent on this fact when he lamented over Jerusalem in Matthew 23:37. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. You see, Jesus, in describing His compassion and love for a rebellious city, says, I feel towards you the way that a mother hen feels towards her chicks. That hen will lay down her even very life for the chicks under her care. If we can learn something from looking at hens we can certainly learn something about God's love from our moms. And if Jesus had this sort of love and affection for a rebellious city, can you imagine what love, care, and concern He has for His bride, the church? And if He said that about a rebellious city who hated Him, can you imagine what kind of love He has for His bride, the church? Well, the good news is we can do more than imagine We can read about it. Jesus in His farewell discourse, which we're right in the middle of, spoke some words to His disciples in the night in which Jesus was about to be betrayed and arrested and then crucified. The events that are about to transpire would ultimately be for the good of His disciples in countless ways. Yet He knew that in their present frame of mind, they wouldn't see that until later. So He's preparing His disciples with words of comfort and hope. He promises them the future of a glorious homecoming. He tells them that He's going to return. He calls them to courageous obedience. And He gives them the most incredible gift. He would not abandon His own. He will never lose any of His own. He will not leave His own without resources in the present struggle. You see suddenly how quickly a mother's love and the love that Jesus has for His bride, the church, have many correlations. In a sermon entitled, Love's Many Languages, I want to consider three expressions of love between Jesus and His disciples this morning. Three expressions of love. The first is love expressed in steadfast serving. Love expressed in steadfast serving. The second will be love expressed in gift giving. And the third will be love expressed in promise keeping. Steadfast serving, gift giving, and promise keeping. Let's first of all look at love expressed in steadfast serving. Jesus says that those who love me will serve me completely. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, the ones having my commandments and keeping them, that one is the one loving me. Verse 23, 
Jesus has said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home, our dwelling place, with him. Three times Jesus repeats this in these few verses. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you, the one who has my commandments and does them, he's the one who loves me. If anyone says he loves me, he'll keep my word. Jesus saying it in multitude of ways, but it is the same point that he's making nonetheless. Now remember the surrounding context. Jesus is addressing his disciples, and his disciples are quite troubled. Back it up. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. He's addressing these men and he says, don't be troubled, guys. Don't be upset. Now, a lot of people in reading this, when you get to verse 14, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. And then verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. A lot of people will think, how does verse 15 fit? How does it fit in this context? It just seems like it's thrown in there out of nowhere. But if you remember the overall context, it fits quite well. This is not an abrupt change of subject. What Jesus is saying to them is this. If you really love me, it will show itself not in depression. It won't show itself in troubledness. It won't show it in sorrow and worry and anxiety. If you love me, obey my commandments. If you love me, this is a direction for your affections. Here's a direction for your thinking. Matthew Henry said it this way. In difficult times, our care concerning the events of the day should be swallowed up in a care concerning the duty of the day. They say that again. In difficult times, our care concerning the events of the day should be swallowed up in a care concerning the duty of the day. He's saying that if we really know what we're about to be doing, what we're supposed to be after, that should so capture our thinking and our hearts and our decisions that the troubles of the day pale in comparison with the great task that we've been given. I think he's capturing the meaning here. Jesus is saying, if you love me, guys, do what I've told you. If you love me, don't be tied up in a whole bunch of anxiety and worry. Keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, Jesus says. You see, where love takes up a firm root, obedience is sure to be the fruit. Where love takes up a firm root, you will see the fruit of obedience come forward. Service flows naturally as a principle of appreciation and gratitude. Those whom you love, you serve. Bottom line. Those whom you love, you serve. If you do not serve them, you do not love them. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You see, genuine saving faith and love for God shows itself in a life of joyful submission to God's commands and service in His kingdom Hearts are regenerated. Minds are renewed. Let's not forget what we believe happens at conversion. A, a miracle happens. The man's heart is transformed. His mind is renewed. He's made a new creature, a new creation. Everything is different. He has a new perspective on life. Because he now truly knows what life is all about. Everything is different. If a man has truly been saved, then he shows that salvation in works done for God's glory and God's renown. Outwardly, a Christian manifests what he is on the inside. He's a new creature, so it shows up in how he talks. It shows up in the decisions that he makes. He's been a partaker of God's love. He's experienced God's grace and God's forgiveness. So he forgives others. And he's gracious to others. And he's merciful to others. God's grace that saves is a grace that transforms and changes us. 
It doesn't leave us as we were before. Yes, he takes us how we are because there's no other way to take us. There's no hope for us if he doesn't take us as we were, but he doesn't leave us as we were. He's transforming us and he's making us more and more like himself. Jesus here is saying, if you love me, obey me. That's what he's saying. If you love me, obey me. This is a wonderful statement and discussion to have with our children when we have disobedience issues with them. You say, do you love mommy or daddy? Yes. Then obedience is a way in which you prove that love. Obedience shows up. Those who love, obey. And Jesus isn't calling us to do anything that he himself didn't perfectly demonstrate. He loved his father. And he was perfectly obedient to his father's will. He did nothing other than what his father told him to, and he did nothing, he said nothing other than what his father told him to say. He demonstrated his perfect love for the father in perfect obedience to his commands. Now certainly we have all messed that up. None of us are perfect. But by God's grace, we are being transformed. And with his love imbuing our hearts and filling our hearts, then we can start to show that love back toward him and towards others as well. Now, that word commandments, if you love me, keep my commandments. For some reason, there's sadly been a push against sometimes uh, any discussion of God's moral will. People have made that into some sort of legalism. I mean, the moment you start talking about, well, God's word says black and white. This is what God requires. This is what he expects. And you start talking about the commandments of God. People sometimes just go, oh, that's that's legalism. That's not the way the Bible handles this. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You see, it's all about the heart. See, if a man does things in order to make himself approved to God, that's legalism. He thinks by his actions, he's now getting approval from God through the actions and thereby saving himself, bringing himself into relationship with God. That's legalism. And it doesn't work. Because you can't be good enough. But it is certainly not the grace of God to say, I've been saved and now I can live like the world. How many times does the Bible speak against such things? At the, at the base of it, it's just this. If you have truly experienced the grace of God, you're transformed. You're just changed. If you've experienced His love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness, then you have experienced something that is life-changing. Jesus says, those who keep my commandments, He says later there, who keep His word. A bit more general. I, I think what Jesus is saying is that those who love me stand for what I stand for. They live as I lived. They talk as I talked. They engage in things as I did. Jesus told his disciples that the greatest commandment, when he was asked that question, he did not give an answer that was in the negative. Let me explain. The Ten Commandments were given in the negative. Do not lie. Do not covet. Do not murder. Do not bear false witness. Do not, do not commit adultery. Have no other gods before me. Do not have idols. These kind of things. It, you see the negative connotation in all of those. Jesus, when asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? He gives a positive statement. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We quickly realize that the command to love is an all-encompassing command. Keeping Jesus' commandments means holding fast to His Word. It means involving our entire, submitting our entire selves to His purpose. Those who love Jesus obey Jesus completely. They take all of His commands. They don't selectively obey depending upon whether Jesus' words suit them. 
They don't treat God's commandments as long as, you know, I'll obey as long as they, as long as I understand them or as long as it fits the way I want to live or as long as it's agreeable to my own happiness, I'll do it. No. The one who loves Jesus obeys his commands, period. Pink said this. An unbeliever may observe some of Christ's words as a matter of policy and prudence. Perhaps you've encountered someone like this, an atheist who goes, yeah, I like some of Jesus' words. I think some of those are good you know, life lesson things and they, they like those. They pick and choose what they like. An unbeliever may observe some of Christ's words as a matter of policy and prudence because they commend themselves to his reason. But others, which to them are distasteful, which appear impractical or severe, he esteems not. If he loved Christ, he would value his word as a whole. But he doesn't, therefore he does not keep his words. How plain that is? A person who loves Jesus will keep his word. All of his words. The one who does not love Jesus will pick and choose with Jesus' words. The ones that fit their philosophy of life. The ones that fit with their own conception of happiness. Also note that it's not merely knowing or having Jesus' word, but keeping Jesus' word that is the hallmark of love. Love is seen in action. And this, my dear friends, is so convicting to me. It should be convicting to anyone who has some amount of knowledge of the Scriptures. Because oftentimes we know more than we put into practice. Jesus says, the one who loves me keeps my word. He not only has my word, but he keeps it. It's more than just a firm intellectual grasp of what he wants. True believers are not so much proved by knowing as they are by doing. Where the Holy Spirit is, there will be holy living. There will be holy living where the Holy Spirit is. He transforms the way we live. In our culture's obsession with emotional and physical love, we seem to have lost sight of the truest and purest love of all. Love that expresses itself in steadfast, loyal, consistent, faithful commitment through any and all circumstances for the good of the other. How about that for a definition of love? One who shows steadfast, loyal, consistent, faithful commitment through any and all circumstances for the good of the other. It's interesting that when, remember, Peter is told by Jesus that he's going to deny him and Peter objects to that, right? He goes, no, that's not going to happen with me. And Jesus looks at him and says, yeah, it's going to happen three times this very night before the rooster crows. When he then goes and finds Peter after his resurrection, and he then asks Peter a threefold question, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you. Each time after having said that, Jesus says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. You know I love you. And then Jesus says, do this. Those who love Jesus obey His commands. Love for Jesus will show itself in love for His disciples. In love for doing the works that He has set out for us to do. Please recognize, it was not us that loved Him first, but He us. John explains this clearly in 1 John 4. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He loved us first. But having loved us, He's loved us in such a way that He's filled our hearts with love with which we love Him back. And then it's so incredible that His love is such 
That he loves us in such a way that he transforms the way that we feel and think and believe and choose. And then we do choose him and we do love him and we do care for him. And then he rewards us for that. What incredible, magnanimous love. It is all him working in us. And yet he rewards us for what he's done in us. Yet he does. This is the nature of the love that God has for us. Jesus explains it also negatively in verse 24. He says, those who don't love me don't keep my words and therefore they will not be, they will be also rejected by me and by my Father. Again, that common theme, reject Jesus and you reject God. Because Jesus says, the words that I speak are not my own but from my Father. So if someone says they love God but they don't love Jesus, that's a contradiction. They don't actually love God. The only way you can love God is to love His Son. And if you reject His Son, you also reject the Father. 1 John 2, 3-5 By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. This we know. We've come to know Him. If you're wondering, how do I know if I've come to know Him? By this we know if we've come, that we've come to know Him if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I have come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. So a person who says, well, I walked the aisle, I prayed a prayer, I was dunked in a baptismal... I'm all good, but their life looks like the world. They don't know Jesus. The one who says, I've come to know him, but doesn't keep his commandments, he's a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has been truly perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Those who love Jesus serve him completely. And those who love Jesus serve him cheerfully. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Those who love Jesus not only serve Him completely, but they serve Him cheerfully. It's like Jacob. Jacob was given a deal by Laban. He was told that if he worked for seven years, Laban would give him Rachel as a bride. And we're told that Jacob worked those seven years. And we're told that those seven years were felt like but a few days to him. Why? Why? Because he loved her. Because he loved her. Those seven years of grueling labor for Laban were like nothing to him because he loved her. See, love inflames obedience, submissive service, but it's cheerful and joyful. It's not a drudgery. First John 5, 2 and 3. By this we know we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. And this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. They're joyful. It's exciting. There's happiness here. This is where true joy and happiness are found. I don't know if Piper said it exactly like this, but something along these lines, you know, we're the most happy when we're the most holy. When we're made more like God, we we experience true joy and delight. You see, this world and the devil loves to throw out temptations that have a temporary fleeting sort of happiness that are being promised, but almost always results in huge amounts of bitterness and grief and regret. You know, this world promotes promiscuity and sex before marriage, but how many people feel really good about it after they've done that? How many people have not experienced regret coming from sin? But you see, when you do things God's way, There's joy without regret. There's true happiness. 
And yes, God is a God who forgives. And yes, God can restore the years the locusts have eaten. And no matter what our sin is here in this congregation, God is a God who is able to save. He can forgive you of the worst sin ever committed. But having been saved by His grace, He now leads us into a place of true joy and happiness. And it's found in keeping His commandments, keeping His Word. You see, while good works certainly do not justify us, we are not saved by doing good works because you could never do enough. And you have to make sure you never did anything wrong, but we all have. So you can't be saved by doing good works. But having been saved by grace through faith in Christ, who did the perfect work and finished what we couldn't do, died and rose again and shed His blood for the forgiveness of sins, those who have that faith, who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, they now are gifted by God to do good works for Him. We're not saved by good works, but we're saved for good works, which He has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Read those verses. Those should be very familiar to us. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. By grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast, but we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Not saved by good works, but saved for good works. And there is true joy and true delight. Again, let me ask the question, how many people on their deathbed ever said, I wish I hadn't done so much for Jesus in my life? Now, whoever, whoever regrets that, whoever regrets, I wish I hadn't obeyed the Lord through my life. But you'll see quite the other regret, won't you? I wasted my life on living that was displeasing to the Lord. I plead for His grace and mercy and forgiveness, and I trust in Him to do so. But there's no joy in that. You know, God, by His grace, will save many, so as by fire. There will be many who are saved. There will be conversions on people's deathbeds. Praise the Lord. He can save them in whatever state they are. Again, otherwise there's no hope for me and there's no hope for you. So praise the Lord that He can save the thief on the cross, right? Sitting right next to Him. He can say to that man, today you'll be with me in paradise. Praise the Lord that is that case. But why live a life that isn't filled with the joy and happiness of God? Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You will serve me completely and you will serve me cheerfully. It will show up in the way in which you obey. The second, the second expression of love, love is expressed in gift-giving. Love is expressed in gift-giving. He says in verses 16 through 18, I'll ask the Father and another Helper He will give to you that He might be with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world is not able to see because it doesn't perceive or know Him, but you know Him because He abides beside you and in you He'll be. Here we kind of move from a description of the disciples' love toward Jesus now toward a description of Jesus' love towards His disciples. And He's going to give them something very, very special. This is the first description that we'll have of at least five descriptions in the coming chapters in John on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. 1 John 2.1 Jesus is called our paraclete our advocate with the Father. 
Jesus is described in His present state in heaven as engaged in a heavenly advocacy on behalf of His own before the Father. But what Jesus is saying to His disciples is, I'm about to be going away, and so I'm going to send to you another paraclete. Another one, because I am one. But I'm about to send you another one. One whose guidance and power you can rely on. One who would compensate for Jesus' own lack of visible presence with His disciples. In fact, it's the Holy Spirit, the Helper, who would make possible the greater works that Jesus has in store for His disciples. He told them, you're going to do even greater works than these, and you're going to do it in the context of prayer. We read about that last week together. Through passionate and persistent prayer. But He says the Holy Spirit is going to help you by providing what you need when you need it. He's going to function as another helper, another paraclete, serving them as Jesus had served them. Remember, Jesus had pleaded with His disciples in the work that God had for them. He had taught them, and He explained to them God's Word. He protected them. He guided them. And they're worried about what it means when He starts talking about He's leaving them. What does that mean for us with you gone? Jesus had defended the disciples against the Pharisees. He had befriended the blind man who he had restored sight to. He prayed for Peter that his faith wouldn't fail. He pleaded with his adversaries when he was being arrested to not arrest his disciples as well. So it's in the deepest, out of the deepest love that Jesus says, I'm going to ask that the Father gives you another helper. Various descriptions are given to us in the New Testament about the sending of the Holy Spirit. Here in John fourteen sixteen, we have that phrase, and I will ask the Father, and another helper He will give to you. So, He's going to give you another helper, another paraclete. In John 15, verse 26, we read, When the Helper comes, whom I send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. There He says, I'm going to send you Him, and He proceeds from the Father. John 16, 7 says, I tell you the truth, it's your advantage I go away. For if I don't go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. So there are several phrases in which the sending, the giving of the Holy Spirit is described. This has caused some to ask questions. Who's sending the Holy Spirit? Is it God the Son or God the Father? Because it seems like we have different passages that are referencing this in different ways. And oddly enough, even this last week at our guys' night out together, we talked about how this even was one of the theological things that, that led, it was one of the factors leading to the split of the Eastern and Western Church, the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. It was a question about the relationship within the Trinity, within, within God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. What is the relationship of the Spirit to the Father and the relationship of the Spirit to the Son? I'm not going to get into all the details here this morning. Just let me say that there's been discussion and debate, and some people have argued that you know, this is something that's irreconcilable. The idea that which one does the Holy Spirit come from? But I think if we remember together what Jesus has just gotten done saying, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. I think the matter doesn't really hold much water. Either way, the Holy Spirit is eternally proceeding from the Godhead. And due to the, co- the tight cohesion between the Father and the Son, the sending of the Holy Spirit could be explained in various complementary ways. The Father 
and the Son are engaged in sending a marvelous gift, giving a marvelous gift to God's children, Jesus' followers. And what is the gift that's given? It's the person of the Holy Spirit. Mark that. The person of the Holy Spirit. He's not just some force. He is not an it. He is a he. He is a person. The Spirit is given divine names. A couple of references you look up later. Acts 28.25. Acts 28.25. Hebrews 10.15 and 16. He's given divine names. He's described as having divine attributes. 1 Corinthians 2.10. 1 Corinthians 2.10. Hebrews 9.14. He's described as doing divine works. The works of God. He's described as doing works. Matthew 12.18. 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Peter 1, verse 12. Not only that, but the Holy Spirit is mentioned in relation to the Father and Son such that If the Spirit is not a person, neither is the Father or the Son. For example, famously in Matthew 28, verse 19, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You see, all three persons, co-equal, co-eternal, all three God. One God, three persons. Jesus says, there's another paraclete, another helper that I'm going to send to you. I'm going to send you the person of the Holy Spirit. He says the world won't recognize Him because He's unintelligible to the world. Why? Because the world lacks spiritual illumination and discernment. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The world cannot perceive the Spirit because they cannot perceive spiritual things. The cross of Christ is foolishness to the world. So are the comforts of the Spirit. If the cross of Jesus is foolishness to you, the comforts of the Spirit you will not understand or experience. D.A. Carson says, profoundly materialistic, the world is suspicious of what it cannot see. But seeing itself, seeing in itself, guarantees nothing, as the world's response to Jesus demonstrates. Jesus showed them things and they still didn't believe. That's his point. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit produces proper conviction. He grants repentance. He grants faith to the unbeliever. He grants hope. He grants love to God's children. It's precisely the element of Christianity that the world doesn't understand. The transformed and changed life. It's the thing they don't understand and the thing that they can't, it doesn't fit into the mold. When you have a genuine Christian, a real Christian living out life, that person does not fit the mold of the world. The reason why DC Talk can talk about, you know, wanting to be Jesus freaks, right? I mean, there's a sense to this. There's a truth to this. Those who are Christ's are not of this world. This is not our home. The paraclete is described here in several different ways. He's described as the spirit of truth. I love that. Spirit of truth. Remember, Jesus just gotten done saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm going to send you the spirit of truth. You can always trust him to guide you right. He will bear witness to the truth, to the truth that Jesus is. For Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. 
paraclete. Uh, translated really rough, it's the one who comes alongside to help. The one who comes alongside and strengthens or aids. So we could translate this word as helper. And that word, some of your Bibles might have it translated that, another helper. It would make us think of the way in which he would help to accomplish the purposes of God. So he works within believers to accomplish what God wants for them to accomplish. Another word that's been used historically is comforter. I'm going to send you another comforter. A lot of translations have moved away from that word because in its original context, in its like more Victorian English context, it means to strengthen. Today we hear comforter and we think of a big, you know, downy blanket. Um, or, you know, helping someone at a funeral. And certainly the Holy Spirit grieves with us and can comfort us in those ways. But the word originally, its original connotation, meant to give strength, to give encouragement, to give aid. Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you the person of the Holy Spirit who will not only come alongside of you, but will come within you and will strengthen you. Others have translated this word counselor. But again, I wouldn't take that as a marriage or guidance counselor sort of sense. But more of the the legal counselor. He is an advocate. He pleads on behalf of God's children. I love Romans 8. Have you ever had a moment where you were so desperate for God, but words escaped you? You didn't have, you didn't know what to say. It was just, it's like as if you were just caught up in the moment and there was nothing to come out of your mouth. Well, I love Romans 8 because it describes the work of the Holy Spirit, how He helps in our weakness. You see, He's strengthening something that's weak. And how's He doing it there? For when we don't know how we should pray as we should, the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He searches the heart. And He knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit making intercession on behalf of believers. Perhaps we encompass all of those descriptions with a statement like, He is Christ's representative. He represents Christ here on the earth. So it's so sad about Roman Catholicism. The Pope is not the representative of Christ on the earth. Christ has left a representative of Himself on the earth. It's called the Holy Spirit. The person of the Holy Spirit indwells Christ's church. And He is making bold testimony through His church to the world. The third and final expression of love I like to look at is love expressed in promise keeping. Look at verses 19 through 22. We see several promises that Jesus gives. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little, and the world will no longer see me, but you will see me, because I live and you will live. And that day you'll know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Now the one loving me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, then says to him, Lord, what's happened that you're about to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus says, you won't be abandoned. He makes a promise. He says, I will not abandon you. Orphans are those who are deprived of their natural provider. And with Jesus' departure, his disciples might begin to feel that way. They might feel abandoned. But Jesus says, I'm not abandoning you guys. He would neither leave them totally nor finally. He provided comfort and strength in his absence. And he promised to return. 
just as if you were mom or dad and you were facing death, and let's say especially if you had little ones. Earlier in, in chapter 13, he mentioned, talked about them as being little children. A parent who is passing away might speak to others trying to make provision for their children, right? This is why we write wills and things of this nature, providing for our children after we go away. Jesus here is saying you won't be orphaned. You're not going to be abandoned. I'm neither leaving you permanently, nor will I leave you in the meantime without help. Jesus said in the Great Commission, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Ephesians 3.17 explains that Christ dwells in the hearts of believers. Colossians 1.27 states that Christ is in believers, the hope of glory. Jesus is still with His disciples. Jesus says, and I will come to you. I will not leave you orphans. Look at verse 18. But I will come to you. I will come to you. What coming is Jesus referring to here? I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to come to you. What does he mean by I'm coming? If Jesus means his, he could mean one of three things. And many people have posited one or the other of these. Jesus means, he could mean his resurrection appearances. In other words, in a very short time indeed, you're going to see me go away and then I'm going to come right back. And I'm going to appear only to you and not to the whole world. That seems to fit the context pretty well. Another way to understand this is Jesus means He's going to come back to them in the Holy Spirit, in the person of the Holy Spirit. In other words, He's not going to leave them without proper support. He's going to provide them what is needed. And He tells them the Holy Spirit's going to accompany you forever. Literally, into the ages. Forever. You'll never be left alone. Or Jesus could be having an even much further forward-looking fulfillment to this and saying a reference to his own second coming. In this case, we go back to like 14, chapter 14, verse 13. If I go to prayer for a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. In other words, Jesus is coming back in glory. And he's going to take his bride, the church, to be with him forever. All those are possible. I lean toward the first interpretation here. I believe Jesus is saying that in just a little while I'm going to go away, but right after that I'm going to come back and you're going to see me. Not the rest of the world, just you. You're going to see me. And you're going to see me in life. And at that moment, you're going to recognize what I've been telling you all along. That I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And that you are in me. And in me you have life. You're going to experience resurrection life. You're going to look at it. I'm going to be right there in front of you. You're going to see me. I'm going away for a short time, a couple days, and I'm going to be right back. And you're going to see me and it's going to imbue you with courage and strength. And then ultimately, I'm then going to give you the Holy Spirit. And with the boldness that He provides, you will go out and be witnesses both here in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and even to the rest of the world. But they would know in that moment when they looked at the risen Jesus, that their Savior and Lord lives. That in His life, they have life. There's a sense in which we could say that His coming encapsulates all of these. Jesus came in body after rising from the dead and showed Himself to His disciples. He then came in spirit after His ascension, giving the Holy Spirit. And then He will eventually come in glory when He returns. But He will not leave His children alone. Judas then asks a question. And here, it's very careful to tell us, Judas, not Iscariot, Probably here, Judas, the son of James, is being referred to. He asks a very reasonable question. He says to Jesus, 
What's going to transpire such that you're about to show yourself to us and not to the rest of the world? What's going to happen such that you're going to show yourself to us and not to the rest of the world? Now, this question is not just some question of speculation. Wondering how it's possible for Jesus in some way to show himself to the disciples and not to everybody else. I think what he's asking here is, what has transpired? What has happened such that what you're about to do is to give us a manifestation of you and not the whole world? Why is he asking this? Well, because this entire time, the the repeated problem for the disciples is a failure to recognize that there's a two-part plan to what God's plan for history was going to be. The Old Testament prophesied a coming Messiah, a king, who would reign and rule over the earth. They're still looking for that. They're still longing for that. And they're saying to Jesus, what are you talking about? You're just going to show yourself to us. How the whole plan is to show yourself to everybody. How can this be a localized, privatized revelation? Surely you should make yourself known to everyone. Every eye should behold you. Judas is trying to say, I don't understand how this fits. I mean, shouldn't your coming be an irresistible, undeniable glory? Why are you talking about just showing yourself to us in a private way? Why not to everyone? Why not a big global manifestation that you're the messianic king? What's transpired? Why the change of plans, he's asking. You see, all of this fails to recognize that Jesus came first as the suffering servant. He'll return as the glorified king. But he came first as the suffering servant. We talked about this in our Revelation study this morning, right? Who's the one worthy to break the seals of the scroll? The lion of the tribe of Judah. Who is the lamb? The lamb. The lion is the lamb. The lamb is the lion. The one who is slaughtered as though dead is the king. Jesus, in responding to Judas, not Iscariot, doesn't deny a final, climactic, apocalyptic revelation. That's still coming, my dear friends. As we read in Revelation, right? When those judgments are being poured out and people are wanting to crawl into caves and have rocks cover them up because they're so fearful of the coming wrath of the Lamb. There's a day when every eye will behold Him and there will be a great day of judgment Those who are not in Jesus will see a horrifying judgment. Those who are in Christ will inherit their eternal life that they've been granted to spend eternity with Him. But Jesus explains that in the meantime, the plan involves God taking up His dwelling in the hearts of those who hear Jesus' words and keep them. He says, right now what's going to happen is I'm going to show myself to you guys And I'm going to give the Holy Spirit. He's going to take up a dwelling in your hearts. And there's going to be a manifestation of me in the church from here until a coming day. It's so interesting. He says, I'm going to make a dwelling place. Myself and my Father will make a dwelling place. The same word used just earlier when Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. So Jesus is going to heaven to make room for us. And meanwhile, He makes room in us to dwell in us, His children, while He waits to take us home to the room He's making for us. Rather than setting up an earthly rule at this point, Jesus' intention is to set up a spiritual rule in the hearts of those who are transformed by God's grace. He says, this will be revealed and manifest to those who love Me, who keep My words. 
I'm going to make my home in you. The Holy Spirit is going to dwell within you. Don't miss this. The Holy Spirit was operating in the Old Testament as well. Right? Even from the very beginning of Genesis, there's the Spirit hovering over the waters. Right? Holy Spirit definitely operating throughout the Old Testament as well. But there's a new facet in the New Covenant. After Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, there's a new form and way in which the Holy Spirit is operating. We're told He takes up a dwelling place in God's people. You see... The big question here is, how is it possible for Jesus to reveal himself to a select group of people and not the entire world right now? The bigger question and the bigger puzzle was not Jesus' choice to reveal himself to the world in the fashion that he has, but the fact that he's able to reveal himself to any man and dwell in any man. How is it possible for God, holy God, sinless God, to make his dwelling in a man who is a sinner? For man's sinfulness and God's holiness to come into such proximity boggles the mind. It's the very reason why Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden when they sinned. How is this possible? It's the very reason why when Israel marched around, there was all the holy place and then the holy of holies and the high priest only went in there on one day of the year. And on that day, there was blood sprinkled on the mercy seat. How is it possible, though? You see, what was pictured there in the Old Testament is fulfilled here in the New. The only reason why the priest could even go in on that one day a year and not be struck dead is because of atoning blood. It's the same reason why God can take up residence in our hearts now. Not because I've ceased being a sinner, but because my Savior has died for my sins. And then He rose again, conquering sin and the grave. The Holy Spirit can dwell within believers on the ground of atoning blood. Jesus shed His blood on our behalf. All those who trust in Jesus, His blood has been poured out for them. His one offering has perfected forever them who are set apart. Hebrews 10.14 And then Jesus just super adds to this whole discussion real quickly. Four additional promises. First, he says, you're going to see me. You're going to see me. And that's the best sight. To see Jesus is the best thing to see. He says, you'll see me. He says, you'll live because I live. You'll have true, eternal, abundant life. You'll be given resurrection life. Because Jesus lives, we live. Because He rose from the dead and dies no longer and death has no dominion over Him. As weak as we are, when we're united with Jesus, we're part of His body and His body will never perish. Being united to Jesus means you have His life. See Him. Live in Him. You'll know Him. The deepest theological knowledge and experience is knowing Him. And He says, you'll be loved. You will be loved. The one loving Jesus will be loved by Jesus and loved by the Father. Again, the only reason we love is because He loved us first. There's a tremendous companionship in this. The best partnership is founded in the strongest unity. The strongest oneness of purpose will bind people together. 
I was talking with Seth this week a little bit about this. He was reading C.S. Lewis's book on the four loves, four different Greek words that are translated love. One of the points that, and I might butcher this a little bit, but Seth will iron it out later on with you if he needs to. But in commenting with um, on phileo, the idea of brotherly love, Lewis said that in order for two people to be friends, they must have some shared value or commitment or interest. In order for you to be friends with someone else, you must have some shared interest. Think about that for just a minute. Like, let that mull over that for just a minute. Is that true? Is that really the way it is? In order to be friends with somebody, I have to have some, some shared interest or commonality. Even friends who differ in great ways have some common interest that binds them together. Take college football rivalries today. What do I have in common with a bunch of Aggie football players? Hardly anything. Hardly anything. In fact, we may have very, very, very little in common. But, should I hear that they've won a game, I'm predisposed to be happy. And if they lose, I'm predisposed to be sad. I might take a baby aspirin and I'll go on with life. But, you know, it, it doesn't... But I have at least some attachment. I, why? Because they represent the school I graduated from. And there's some people that are much greater in their loyalty to institutions like that than I am. But still, there's even an inkling in me just, just because I went to the same school as this group of football players. For this reason, Christians have the strongest phileo. We have the strongest brotherly love. Because let's just be honest, in this room, there's a lot of differences. A lot of us are very different from one another. Maybe some of us would admit we would not be friends were it not for Jesus. But with Jesus, we have the strongest uniting purpose. We have the strongest companion. We have the strongest love. And in Him, we are brothers. It doesn't matter what other things you like or dislike. If you love Jesus, we love one another. The promise of doing greater things that Jesus brought up in John 14.12 anticipated the need that we be empowered to do these greater things. And the promise of having answered prayer, whatever we might ask in Jesus' name, promoted a question for clarification. Who are the ones that Jesus is answering these things to? And I think in these verses, He answers both of those anticipated needs. Number one, those who pray in Jesus' name are those who love His His person who listen to His words, who obediently follow His directives. They're servants who follow Him completely and cheerfully. Prayer is therefore not a tool to manipulate Jesus to fulfill some selfish desire in me, but a tool and an avenue whereby I accomplish His purposes because He's my King and I want His purposes to go forward and His kingdom to be advanced. And number two, how can we possibly do this in this world? Because Jesus has not left us alone. He's granted us the person of the Holy Spirit who indwells and who guides and empowers His disciples for the work that He's planned for them. There is such a wonderful harmony of love that's going on here. Gifts being given, service being rendered, companionship being promised. What love is present in the Gospel. And I'm thankful for those moms who know Jesus and bring us and tell us about that Savior.
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that You would help us to value and appreciate the love that You have poured out so bountifully upon us. It's come in a variety of means. We've looked at just three of those here today. But we know so many wonderful gifts You have poured out. And sometimes those most precious gifts are given to us in the form of people. And we do want to thank You, especially for the mothers that You have granted us. I pray that You would strengthen mothers not only in this congregation, but all across the world. I know the most important thing any mom can first do is to come to know You. And I grant that I ask that You would grant mom's repentance and faith in a relationship with You. Then out of that, give them wisdom, give them courage, give them perseverance. Help them to find joy in the midst of sometimes what feels like drudgery service. Help them find joy in the midst of it. In the midst of even everyday tasks like doing laundry and washing dishes and helping in ways around the house like that, Lord. I pray that You would just fill them with purpose and blessing and help them to know that they are loved and cherished and cared for. And no matter what, if no one else sees it, You see their service and You will reward it richly. Thank you for the blessings that you have poured out. We ask that you would do so even, even with more magnitude on these moms. In Jesus' name, amen.